Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Views on View. I'm your host, Lindsay Wardell, and today with us is Austin. Hey, from San Diego. And Dean. Hello from Cloudhurst, New Zealand. And I am in cold Portland again. And today it is just us three. We're going to be talking about view components, why they are awesome, and how you can build some libraries of your own. So let's just dive right in. One of the most popular pairings for view on the front end is Laravel or PHP on the back end. If you're setting up and running a PHP app, then why hassle with all the backend config? Instead, count on Cloudways. Cloudways provides a solution that will have you up and running quickly. They offer exceptional performance and reliability and 24-7 support. So your website or your web app, which is probably crucial to your business, will run in an environment designed for it. Go run it on Cloudways. If you use the code DEVCHAT, you'll get 30% off for three months. Austin or Dean, do either of you want to start out by explaining what just from the basics, what exactly is a view component? Why why do components matter? Sure. So relatively recently with, I think Angular was probably the first project, and then React and Vue, there was this like paradigm shift in building websites going from, you know, sort of a, a WordPress-y sort of website, or at least in my experience, WordPress was what I was building sites on. And you kind of build with the mentality of, building a page, you kind of think about the entire page. And then these JavaScript frameworks came out and there was more of this concept of individual components. Actually, there was probably some other templating languages as well before before like React and Angular. But these like JavaScript components or these web components give you an opportunity to design and develop individual components of a page that you can then compose together to build out a layout and a page and a website and all that. So there's a lot of benefit in doing things that way because they're reusable, they're composable, they're consistent. Breaking things down into little bite-sized chunks makes it easier to test as well. And they're shareable. Like, you know, if you make a component library, you can share it on NPM with anyone else that wants to use it or within an organization to maintain brand style guides. I don't know if anyone else wants to add to that. <laughs> I think that's, that was a great explanation. Um, I guess we could probably dive into use case at some point in today's uh, episode. But I guess one one that I'll bring up is actually as early as yesterday. One of my junior developers that I have working with me, we needed to build a. It's a timer. Uh, it's a. It's a. It's pretty much just a true single page app in that there's really only one view to it, which is a list of timers that are running for people to pause, stop, resume. And at first, we're just building a regular V4 with all the timers being rendered inside of that because we felt, oh, it's not complicated enough to really go down the component route. Where that really quickly changed was as soon as we had to manage the set intervals that, that were running in the background to like update the timers, having all the business logic to control uh, a, a, a different number of timers, that actually ends up making your code incredibly complicated when you're trying to manage multiple set intervals and like, which one am I referencing? And it simplified the code dramatically once we said, hey, let's just put everything that matters about that one component into its own, about one timer into its own component. And we can render that as many times as we want and the internal stuff is not going to really conflict with anything else. And that was just a phenomenal use case for where a component is, make actually makes your code simpler. Whereas when you first think about components, you might, you might think, ah, oh, Man, I have to think about so many more different things, but definitely feel like in this case, 
it simplified the business logic tremendously. So it was a really, really good use case. I know at my job, we typically are using components to bundle certain types of functionality so that it's reusable, just like you were saying. So in our application, where it is multiple pages, um, we have a modal component that includes all of the logic of showing and hiding a modal and all of the styles that go along with it. So it's all bundled in a single place. And then across the different pages, you can just insert that modal component and the content that you need, and then just control whether it's showing or hiding, and it does the rest. So, Yeah. And I guess I, uh, I can't remember who spoke about it, but um, it might have been you, Lindsay, where sometimes we just think about components from a visual standpoint. But I know that some people have used components to just kind of group together business logic as well, because it makes it a lot easier to just implement components via, via, I mean, business logic that's shared by components quite often. It's a bit easier to do it that way. Yeah, I, I definitely agree on that. So with that in mind, just looking at Vue as our, our framework of choice, to me, what a, a Vue component is, typically there's the, the template, obviously, it's the, the HTML that goes into the page. And then there's the script, which is the actual component data. So data, methods, computed properties, uh, lifecycle hooks, things like that. But in other frameworks, that's not necessarily the case. That's, it's something very specific to view. Does anyone else have experience in other frameworks, even briefly, about how their components work compared to view? So I, I've used React before, and there are some, some differences in both React and Vue have these concepts of props. But React, there's like some differences in how you would render content that would go inside of that. Well, you have like children or this concept of children, which in view that kind of corresponds with like slots. And then there's the way that you handle sort of events being triggered by the nested components, which is like you can have what they call like render props or something like that. So there's some differences, but a lot of it across the board is kind of the same in terms of like why you would do it and a lot of the implementation and things regarding props, for example, which we should probably get into at some point. Yeah. Yeah, that's Definitely. that's one thing. I, I came up in a discussion in our the dev chat uh, Discord channel. One of the one of our new members was chatting about he was just getting into web and, and programming in general. And he is we we made the joke that he should go to you because it was me and Lindsay that were like basically talking to him. And he said that he was going to be studying React. But generally what I find is that once you once you really understand any JavaScript framework, the, the, the concepts do move pretty pretty smoothly across. The specific implementation might change, but that's the nice thing about, about programming in general, really, that you, if you really understand the core concepts of what you're trying to do, it's just a matter of reading documentation. Thankfully, Vue's documentation, I, I believe, one of the better documented frameworks out there. So it's just a matter of if you understand the, the, the concepts, Having to look up exactly how to implement that is is pretty pretty easy, and that that means that like because I agree, Austin, the 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 concepts do stay the same. My my first framework was Angular one, and while it didn't really have true components the way we think of them today, there's still a way to definitely build reusable stuff that I that and and I definitely took made use of it. So once you get those concepts, you can look up the the various ones, and I think with React especially pretty much everything's a component. So they, they kind of almost force you into that. It's a lot easier to write reusable components almost by accident. 
which is kind of nice because because moving them to to truly reusable components isn't too difficult. But I haven't had enough experience with Vue, but I've never really had too much trouble doing it. So yeah, cool. In either of your opinions, when when you're so you're working on a Vue application, you're going along, you're making your your app work and getting all the logic set, all of the templating. When do you feel it is appropriate to start considering breaking something out, making a new component? Or is this not your path? Do you start with the component and then see where you can bring it into your application later? So, so me personally, I tend to, to probably componentize later than I should. I tend to just like throw everything into these big view components and view by V-I-E-W. So that's kind of how I think about my apps is like each page and I kind of build them out. Usually when I start thinking, hey, maybe I need to rethink this is when I'm copying and pasting a lot. <laughs> like um, <laughs> a perfect example is if like I've got a common footer or a common header, that's, that's definitely like almost instant trigger to in my head saying this needs to be a component. So yeah, I definitely try to do that. Uh, quite often you can get around stuff like headers and footers in view, I feel by using your app.view and then like the router views, if you're using the view router. So you can actually put like those common elements instead of putting them into components. I mean, every single view, you just put them into your app.view, but um, that's probably not the best way to do it. Yeah, but that's probably one of my gut reactions is when I start copying and pasting code. That makes sense. How about you, Austin? Have you had any experience breaking things out into components? Yeah, totally. So I, I think that maybe we can we can track back a bit and just like I just want to mention that sort of if anyone that's listening is is new to Vue or kind of your it's your first foray into the JavaScript sort of ecosystem, I should mention that sort of everything on everything that you end up seeing on the page in a traditional like single page application is a component. So Yes, we have like different pages, like the home page or the about page, but those would also those would be components that are rendered by you know a router. And then there's components that are responsible for rendering your markup like you would expect. Um, but then there's also different types of components that do like they don't render anything. They just provide you with some data. Like let's say I want information about the current. Uh, status of like the, the user's network connection, whether they're on 4G or you know some slow connection or something like that. You can have like renderless components, and then you can have like what what Dean was saying is sometimes you have these sort of wrapper components that only provide like a, a consistent wrapping experience, and then whatever is in the middle can kind of change. I don't know if that makes sense, but. Part of it is like the layout of your page. So you have the navigation on the top and the footer on the bottom. And then what's in the middle is the, the content that is changing. But all of it's really components. It's just how you're using them that changes, right? Yeah, so that's where we kind of talk about like the, the component composition, right? It's like if I have a page and I have a header in the footer and then I have content in the middle and the content in the middle is what changes, well, that, that page is going to be a component that maybe has a header and then the header is going to be made up of its own components, right? Some navigation and maybe the logo or I don't know, some things. And then the footer might have be composed of its own little components in there. And then this sort of layout that has the header and the footer and then whatever the content that's going to be changing, like that would be its own sort of layout component. So there's, I mean, the, the term component can mean a lot of different things. So I think, yeah, having, a, having an understanding, a grasp of like that 
is helpful because sometimes it means literally just a button on the page. And sometimes it means the layout of the page. And sometimes it means um, something you don't even see on the page, but provides you with uh, some sort of data. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and that that's like a whole rabbit hole. But you know, as we're, as we're talking about components, it may not always be just like a component that has a single functionary purpose. To get back to the question about when when do I when do you componentize, right? I think Dean Dean touched on like one of the best opportunities is when you find yourself copying and pasting, then you know that you have some code that you're repeating. And if at some point that changes, that that layout changes or whatever, now you're gonna have to do that, uh, implement that change in two places, which is not ideal. So if you can pull that out into a component that can render the two versions given some sort of variation in props or the variation in implementation, then you can make that change in one place and it'll be applied everywhere that that component has been used. So that's a good example. I think some other opportunities are you might decide if a component gets to just kind of doing too much, handling some different unrelated business logic or even like the file length just gets too long. I mean, we were kind of talking about this before the show, but you know, Lindsay, you were saying that around 200 lines is your limit for a, a single file component, then that might be you know, at least a signal that it might be time to look for opportunities to pull things out into a component. Another good opportunity is anytime you're creating a list of elements, so like an unordered list or maybe a grid or you know, anything that's in a list that's going to be repeated, Views is nice because it gives us a V4 directive. And if you can take whatever the content, whatever that little template that the V4 is going to be repeating over, you can pull that out into a component, then that's another good opportunity to separate some some logical concerns. Yeah, like you said uh, before the show, we were talking and I said, when I was studying React, I read a quote-unquote best practice that said you should, for a React component, you should go no more than 100 lines. And I tried applying that for a while, and it really helped just trying to keep the, the file small because the, the text itself didn't matter the length of the, the file. But by keeping it concise, I was able to keep single components focused on what they were supposed to be doing. So a button component would focus on just what a button was doing. A modal component would focus, focus on just what a modal was doing. And then everything else could be built up around that. And because Vue is more verbose than React, I expanded it to 200 lines for any Vue application that I was working on. Austin, you mentioned having those those kind of wrapper components. And at my work, we've been calling those higher order components. Do you run into that a lot? Or is that something that you only see occasionally where you have that component that either passes data down or has to do something in order for the data inside to work properly? Do you see that often or just occasionally? Um, I, don't, I don't implement higher order components too often, but I do, I do see them written about a lot in like blog posts. I think so. So a higher order component, a good example of this is I might have a base button for my application. And maybe the base button is like just a, a boring gray background with some black text on it, right? And then we say, cool, we have a button and we want to give it um, a way to have an info button, a warning button, a success button, right? So those respectively might be blue, red, and green, right? Info warning success or error right mm-hmm. blue red or blue yellow green red whatever so <laughs> when i implement those buttons i can i can allow the developer 
to customize whatever classes are going to be applied to that button or whatever styles through a prop. I can say my prop, my button prop might be type, right? And it can accept info, warning, success, error. And then the style, the appropriate styles will be applied based on whatever the prop that it receives is. So a higher order component might would be something that like I create a new component that implements uh, maybe it's the the success button is my higher order component is now the success button component so I would implement the the default or base button component and I would pass it the prop for the success type or version right so now I don't have to pass the prop around everywhere that I want to use that button and have it be a success, I can just use the success button. That makes sense? Makes sense to me. Um, That's one way. I mean, there's other implementations of higher order components. For example, it may not be the display properties that you're changing, but you could say, I want a higher order component that is going to log any errors that happen to the console, right? So you can use higher, you can use the pattern of higher order components to compose different functionality together to get the final sort of component version that you want. <laughs> that was a very abstract way of saying it, but essentially like I might have a, a, a component that like simply um, adds on to, or it accepts a component uh, definition and then it adds some features to it that does like, uh, oh, I don't have a good example, but let's just say some sort of, it adds some sort of like error logging feature or even just like it console logs whenever the component mounts, right? So view has these lifecycle events. Um, like when the component mounts, we could say we want that we want this component to log. Hey, I'm here, everyone, and I can have a function that takes a component definition and appends onto it that mounting console log feature. That would be another another concept of a higher order component that doesn't affect the layout or design, but adds functionality. So Austin, just to um, clarify that, like some questions. So you're saying that we, you'd basically create a high order component, let's say call it a logging component. And then that would be the base of, let's say every component in your system. And if you wanted to have that run on every component, that would be your base high order component and you'd build off of that regardless of what component you're building. So you can do that. React kind of has like this concept of higher order components a lot more, I think. Vue has this concept of mixins. So if you're familiar with mixins, it's kind of the same idea. But yeah. you would essentially, yeah, like if you wanted, you may not want logging feature on all of your components, right? You might want it just on a few. And rather than copying and pasting that logging functionality over to the components that you want, you can have a function that takes a component definition and appends onto it the functionality that you're looking for and then outputs that same component definition with the new functionality. So then you have like a new component definition that includes everything that you want. And you could even have this like chain several several different types of features together. Oh, great. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. We talked a little bit about props at the beginning, how React uses props and Vue uses props. And the way Vue uses props is a lot different, in my opinion. Would either of you like to talk about that at all? Otherwise, I can say some things. Lindsay, why don't you say something? Let's hear it. I'll go for it. (laughs) So with React, when you pass in props, unless you're using something like TypeScript, where you're able to define the types that's coming in, with React, it's just an object called props. And you just pass in the data, and you can use whatever you want with it. 
With Vue, it's a little bit different. You have to define what props you are expecting in your component. Uh, and that can be done a few different ways. The simplest way is in your, your object that you're exporting from your script tag, you just have a props key that has an array of strings with the prop names that you're expecting. So if I'm wanting to pass in a name, an age, and any other data, I'd have to put those strings into the array for the props key. But that's, that's just the basic way to do it. You could also expand on that and add in additional values, like what type this is. Is it a string? Is it a Boolean? Is it a number? Is it a function? Is it a required value? You can say yes or no. Is it a required value? You can set a default value. So if no, no prop is passed in, the default for name is Bob, something like that. There's a lot of different functionality you can use on, on props in that way. You can also do validation. So you can say, these are the acceptable props. If you're, if you're passing a string, for example, these are the acceptable strings that you could be inserting into this, prop, into this uh, component through this prop. At work, we have a modal component that accepts either small, medium, or large for the, the width of the modal. And there's a validation on that to check if you pass in something that isn't small, medium, or large, it rejects it and you get an error during development. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of how Vue handles props. It doesn't rely on any external libraries like TypeScript or plugins to define its types. It's built right into the uh, framework itself. Anyone have anything to add on that? Yeah. So in the comparison with React, it's really interesting because I think from, from React, you're kind of, I think the mental space is you're dealing with props from a top-down approach, meaning like I know that, or I guess the way that I've, I've worked with it in the past is I'll be building out a page and then I say, cool, I, wa- I want to be able to pass this prop to from this parent to this child. And so I'll define that in the parent on the props that I'm passing to the child. And then from there, I will open up the, fi- the child file and I'll define that new prop that I'm receiving and then use it where I need to use it. And I kind of like that. I think that, that that flow, well, I guess the, the flow with Vue is, is kind of the other way around. Like with Vue, I have to describe the props that my, my child component is going to expect for them to actually work, right? Because if I don't define it, then I can pass whatever props I want to the child, but it's not going to actually be able to use it. And, and I, find, I find that kind of frustrating because... You know, I'll forget to register the prop and be like, oh, where's this prop that I'm looking for or trying to use? And so with React, it's just like inherently automatically there. But I do really love that the prop type definitions and the validation and all that is just built right into Vue. It's like, it's really, really nice to just have that available. And the way that they do it is really convenient. So yeah, that was that was interesting. The props documentation, I mean, Vue documentation, like we said, is excellent. The props documentation, I find extremely well-written. I've introduced a lot of these concepts to my team of different ways that you can use props because they'd just been doing the simple array of strings. And so once they saw I was writing in default values and what type things were, they started uh, borrowing that as well. Uh, so yeah, I definitely recommend the Vue documentation on that. Yeah, as far as props go, like definitely the best practice. So so Vue, Vue can accept props like as an array with just the string of the prop name. And I used to do it that way, but I'd say the best practice is like always pass in an object with the prop name as the key. And then the value is going to, could be the prop type, or it could be an object where you define the type 
and the default value and whether it's required in the validation and all that. And I'd say definitely, definitely, like best practice, define your props as an object with the prop name or the prop definition as an object where you give it the type that it's expecting and either the default value or whether it, or that it's required. And I found that that, that that works the best for me in terms of like having a very a very nice user experience as far as like if I have a, a required prop that I forget to add, I get a warning in the console. It's like, hey, you tried to mount this component and you didn't pass it the prop that it's expecting. So it's a great way to to not have errors or if you pass in the prop with the wrong type. Yeah. And one other thing on the, if you're passing in the object for your props value, you can also extract that as a separate uh, file if you need to and import it into multiple components if they're all accepting the same kinds of props. So if you have multiple components that require a name, an age, and a country, let's say, you could have a separate JavaScript file that just has that object with the prop description and just import that into each component you need. We've had to do that a couple times at work and made things a lot easier. Because it's just a standard object. So it's not using anything yeah, specific. Yeah. Another, another important piece of components. So at this point, we've talked about props, how you get data into the component. Another important factor is getting data out of the component. Do either of you want to talk about how you get data out of components back to the parent? So I probably don't do it the right way because I tend to overuse Vuex stores. Maybe not overuse is not the right word, but I tend to use Vuex a lot for communicating changes to data around. But I guess if I was running a true component, that would not be the way I'd want to go. So I'm really, this is something I'm really interested in hearing how you guys handle it. Oh, okay. How about you, Austin, before I jump in? Yeah, there's there's a lot to unpack here. I mean, obviously, Vuex is one way if you have global information. And that's that's like a very handy, convenient way. There's also, you know, in the same sort of vein, there's this concept of an event bus where you can have a different view instance that's working just to sort of track data or events being fired, whatever. That can be handy. But if you're doing, if you're just passing data directly from a child to a parent, then one of the most, or one of the recommended ways is going to be with a, a custom event that you emit from the child. And so you you have you have the dollar sign emit method on any view component and it expects a a name of the event as a string and then an optional second parameter which is the value for that event and that can be anything right so if i have a component that just tracks how long it's been mounted onto the dom in seconds then it might it might list register a set timeout and every 1000 milliseconds it would emit an event called like update time and whatever the time that it currently is. So then when the parent uses that component or implements it in the template, uh, you can use the at event listener, same as you would with like an at click handler or an at update. You can use the at symbol and then the event name and then assign that to whatever um, event handler you want to use. That's one common way. Lindsay, I don't know if you wanted to talk about events events more, but I also want to get into to scope slots, which is pretty handy. On, on the point that you were making with this.emit, a couple other interesting ways to pass data back up or to and from a component child to a parent is either implementing your own version of vModel, 
or there's the dot sync, not sure what it's called, the direct, not a directive uh, modifier to when you're doing, doing a bind. So let's say you were passing in just, just that name prop that we've been talking about occasionally. So normally you do the colon name equals name. But what you could do instead is colon name dot sync equals name. And what that does is it adds two values. It binds the name value to the child component. So it, so it goes down to the child. But it also adds an event listener for an update colon name event. So in the child component, you can then do this dot dollar sign emit update colon name and pass the name value back up to the parent. And Vue writes the, the bindings onto the child component from the parent automatically for you. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah that's, that's one of my favorite ways to do that. I've uh, always seen that, and I've never implemented the custom, ver- like a totally custom sync event, and that's really handy to know. If I'm hearing that correctly, that means that basically any reactivity that happens on the prop that you're passing in will actually fire when that prop ch- when the value of that prop changes within the component without you having to do anything. You you still have to do a little bit. So typically, what I do at that point is I write a custom computed property that. Set, mm-hmm. has its own get and set. The get gets the prop, just this dot name in this case, returns returns whatever came in in the prop. And the set then triggers the this dot dollar sign emit update colon name and then passes up the new value into the parent. Okay. That's some, that's some next level viewing. It is so nice. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. The other thing you can do is if you want to write your own V model. For those who don't yet know yet, V model is what typically used on inputs or checkboxes and radio, things like that, so that you can do two-way data binding. You can do the same thing with custom components as well. So if you write V model equals name onto our child component, inside of that, it then accepts a prop of value. Value would be the name in this case. And then it's expecting an event of input. So if you just do this dot dollar sign emit input and then pass up the value that you want, you are now replicating the same experience that you would with a normal V model on a regular input field. Those are the other two ways that I know to uh, pass data back up from a child to a parent. Some, sometimes it's a benefit to actually change the name of the V model value. Like by default, it will expect a prop called value and then expect or work with a an event called update. But sometimes you want to ch- customize the name of the that, of the prop that it's receiving, either for you know it's easier. It makes more sense if it's like a person prop or a user prop or whatever. It makes more sense as a different yeah. name than value. Conversely, it makes more sense as a different event than update. And there's also something, yeah. The point that the point that I was getting at is there's something kind of weird about sometimes your event handlers will be a little bit they won't they won't work as expected with a custom V model unless you change the update handler or the update event or the value because something to do with like if I also if I want to use a custom V model and I also want to listen to the update event I think there's a some weirdness that happens there unless you change the event listener that that V model is associated with. Is that clear? I think so. And <laughs> I, I haven't experienced the uh, the oddity myself, but I typically use the the dot sync modifier myself. 
Yeah, that sync sounds like the right solution for a lot of things that I've been using a custom V model for. One other point I just remembered on on binding data. If you want to pass an entire object down from a parent to a child, you can pass it down with just a V bind equals and then the object name, and that will bind each individual key of the object to the child. So if you pass an object of person with name, age, and country, it will then bind name, age, and country down to the child, and you don't have to work on the, the object itself. Cool. So yeah, let's get into scope slots, if that's yes. all right. Have either of you got, have either of you done much with scope slots? I've used scope slots within component libraries where they give you access to specific slots and it is very powerful. So I, I, I really love using them. So hearing how to develop them and actually implement them in your own components will be really nice. Yeah, I don't have a code example in front of me, so maybe I can pull one up, but it might be hard to actually explain like the how of implementing without looking at that directly, but we can talk about like what they are and why they're awesome. So, so before we get into scope slots, we should probably talk about slots. The slots are this concept in view. They're kind of synonymous with um, children in React, where if I have a component, sometimes that component is cool to just be in the template on its own and it handles everything that it needs to do. Other times, I need that component to be like, like we were talking about the layout wrapper, right? It needs to have like a beginning and an end and whatever is in the middle, I need to be able to customize from wherever that component is being implemented. That's where slots come into play, where maybe I have, uh, let's just say a very rudimentary component example would be like a div that wraps a slot. So when I implement that component in a parent, the output of that is going to be the div and then whatever content that I want to put in between or yeah, in between that div would be what I put in between the opening and closing tag for that component. So that's handy because, you know, sometimes let's say with a modal or a layout, I want the same beginning and ending, but I want some somewhere in that component to be customized from uh, impl- from uh, case by case for each implementation, right? So that's more or less slots. Scope slots are a little bit of the same concept, but it's a way to pass data from the child, which is the the implementation component, to the parent. So with the scope slot, what I can do is I might have some reactive state on that child, and I want the parent to be aware of it. But every time that this child component is used, the layout might change. So where before I had a div and then a slot, it may not be Across different implementations, I may want it to be a div, I may want it to be an unordered list, I might want, may want it to be something else. So I can take that scope slot and I can provide the data, let's say, it's a, let's say it's a collection of blog posts, right? I can provide that data to the parent by means of the scope slot, and then the parent can implement that component and can access the list of blog posts using the slots like scope slot attribute. This is kind of the same in React as a a render prop. So then in the parent, I can take on two different pages, I can render the same component with the same blog post list data. And in one case, I can render it as like a list of items. In another case, I can render it as a grid of blog posts. Does that that make sense? I feel like a lot of these concepts are like really abstract without looking at code. And on that note for everybody, everything that we've been talking about is in the view documentation. So you can go to Vue.js.org and see a lot of what we're talking about 
in their components in depth section. And also, if you if you do get stuck, I, I I generally have the Discord channel open. I don't know how much help I can be on this topic specifically, but we tend to we tend to be in the Discord channel. So if if any of our listeners need some help, come join the Dev Chat Discord channel and just ask questions. We have a decent community and we always try help. So hopefully you'll be able to catch one of us if you're stuck on anything. Wait, did that did that explain scope slots all right? I think it did. It's actually like a really, really helpful pattern if you're publishing a library for public use. Speaking of which, so let's say we have now written our nice component or we've written multiple components and they all work well together. They accept their props, they pass up events, they need slots, they're handling it great. What do we do after that, after we have our component, if we want to share it with the world? Austin, what, what do you think would be the next step to do with that? So one good approach is NPM, obviously, is probably the most ubiquitous. So I, I guess what you could do is like publish it on GitHub would be the first step, right? And then if people are interested, you could just say, hey, here's my GitHub project. You can download the source code and then start using it. But more often than not, if you want to share it with the world, you're going to want to publish it on NPM. So before you do that, you got to come up with a super sweet name for the project because everyone knows that the name is like the most important thing. <clears throat> you mean I can't um, just call it generic component library 27? Nope. Nope. Dang it. No one's going to want to download that and you can't remember it, you know? No, I mean, like I joke, but it's funny. It's funny how many times like I'll look at, I'll look at maybe like two or three different options for components of, I don't know, something that I need to solve. And I'm like, well, this one's got a cool name. So I'm going to go ahead and go with that one. <laughs> I think I've done that before myself. Yeah. But yeah, so you you get a sweet name and then you need to publish it for the world to use. So there's a bunch of different ways that you need to do that. Or there's a lot of things that you need to like take into account. First off is most likely, or, or some some libraries are like, the amount of work that you need to do between publishing components for like your project and publishing components for the for the for the public it's like orders of magnitude different in terms of work because suddenly you know my project i may only need to maybe i'm building a project for like some electron app so i literally only need to write code that works in the like the latest version of chromium right but if i need to publish for the public and i've got you know a large user base of people that are interested in working on it and they they work in hospitals and therefore, you know, they might have some old uh, Windows system running that needs to run on IE 11. Well, now the scope of work changes because it needs to be able to work in IE 11. So that's a massive headache. But yeah, what ultimately like what goes into that is going to be you need a build process in place that's going to take your source code and convert it into something that your users can use. So if you're building something with .view files, that needs to be compiled into JavaScript. A lot of library authors want it to work as a script tag that you can just put in the, the head of your HTML document. And that's a totally different build process. So that's a giant pain in the butt, but that's, that's, a, that's a really important step for it. And then it's, after that, it's just as easy as like in your package.json, you have to say, there's a few things that you have required. So you have to have a package.json file to publish on NPM. And then it has to have a unique name. You have to have a version number. I think you probably have to have an author. And then you have to have a main uh, key. And the main key is what tells NPM or Node which file to put in, to pull in when you import 
that project. So if I say like import project X from project X, project X will have a package.json that points to a relative directory in that node modules folder. That is like the final JavaScript output. I think that's what it takes to actually like publish it if you want to go to NPM. Okay. And I know with Vue, uh, depending on what you're what kind of library you're building. In this case, we're talking a component library. You could also hook it up to use the uh, view.use command when you're when you're instantiating the application your library is going into, or you can just bring in components as you need them, right? Yeah, so probably with any... So Well, also in your package.json, you define not just the main file that's going to be imported, but every file that's included in that... Uh, download when it downloads into your into your node modules. So probably like almost any project is going to include all of the source code. So in theory, you know, I could have a plugin that I use from like I import just the main bundle. And I tell Vue to use that plugin, or I could you know get into the node modules folder and drill down into their source code and try and find the one component that I'm looking for and just import that. And in theory, if that's a view, like a dot view file, then it would work the same as any local dot view file in terms of importing. But to your point about plugin registration, there's a format that's, you know, if you're interested in this, you should check out the view docs. But there's a format for, or there's a function that view provides you when you want to register a new plugin. So a component, a component library is often implemented as a plugin. And it gives you some functions that provide you with the current view instance, as well as like the opportunity to register components or register directives or things like that. So when you have a when you're building a view app and you import view from view, so you import the view library from the view npm package, and then when you want to create a new view app, you say you know whatever settings I need, and then new or my app equals new view whatever. Before you instantiate that instance, you can register plugins with view.use, you can register components with view.component, I think, and you can yeah. register directives with view.directive. So to allow plugin authors to hook into those same functionalities, there's the view.use to instantiate a plugin, and inside of that plugin, plugin authors have access to that view, what is it, the, the view instance, basically. So that's where that's where plugin authors would register like new components or new directives as needed for to provide to the application that's consuming it. Right. Yeah, I feel well, like there's so many there's so many like abstract things I'm covering. I don't even know if I'm making sense. It's sounding all good to me. I've I have some experience with the bits you were just talking about, and that all sounded right to me, and it made sense. So hopefully, it makes sense to other people who have not experienced this yet. I'm sort of following, and I don't I haven't experienced it, so I think we're doing a good job. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I mean, like, again, we go, we keep going back to the documentation and it's really good. Like if you want to create a plugin, it's, it's just a few lines of code and the view documentation does a great job. And I'd say like, I would, I would recommend anyone to, to get into writing it. I know, I know I made it sound like kind of a, a burden, but the, the barrier to entry to actually do the, the least amount of work is super low and you can have something published and it feels pretty cool. And you start seeing people download your stuff and it's, it's fun. I agree. I don't have as final a library as, or not, not final, as, as concrete a library as Vue Tensils. But a few weeks ago, I put out an Elm Vue bridge so that you could render an Elm 
component or an Elm application inside of a view component. And that was really fun to put out and somebody's already forked it on GitHub. So it's pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's a weird, it's a weird world. You get those like people fork it and you're like, whoa, what are you doing with my project? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on? Yeah, I have a a React, a small React component library. I just made it for personal stuff. And I put it up on GitHub or on NPM because I just wanted to be able to install it in my projects. And there's been at least a few people following it and forking it. I just not even documented, so I don't understand what's going on. But yeah, there's just bots out there that are like doing whatever. Like there's some libraries that I've published that have, I mean, like the same day you publish it without saying anything about it, there's like downloads. It's like what, what, why? Yeah, there's a, there's at least fifty to hundred bots whenever I push something new up. I like to pretend that they're people, and then it gives me a little ego boost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you kind of wonder if those bots are running vulnerability scans over the code to potentially find vulnerable libraries that are out there, either for security purposes or for malicious purposes, which pretty much they do the same thing. Both sides have to do the same work in order to find those those holes. But one set of them try plug the holes and the other set of them try abuse them. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I know. Uh... GitHub does the same thing. I've, I've accidentally pushed up an API key to my GitHub public, and I got at least two or three emails saying, hey, you just put up a token. Don't do that. It's probably compromised already. Wow, uh, yeah. So yeah, if I'm getting know, emails telling, telling me that that's happening, I'm sure there's at least that many people trying to abuse it immediately. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a funny story about that. I was, doing a, I was giving a view workshop, and when I do workshops, I really like to have a repo to, to work off so that every couple of minutes, you know, I can just like push up the changes and people can pull them down and because people get off, you know, they do something weird and the app breaks and it's like a nice way to get people back on board. Well, we were building a, a project that was integrating with the, the GitHub API and I kept on like having to register a new API key and then I was putting it in my like, you know, secrets or not the secrets file, but the, the ENV file. And then I would send that up and people kept on pulling the project down and couldn't get the app to work. And it took me like 10 minutes to figure it out. And finally, I saw the emails coming in that were like, hey, you pushed up an API key. We automatically removed it. So I had to walk, walk people through getting their own API key. And that was a, it, was a, it was one of those like really embarrassing live coding moments. It was like, oh, God, I'm sorry. Why am I doing this? Happens. And now we know not to do that. Yeah, I'm really glad that GitHub does that. Though. Like, it's cool that they. It's you know. What, what's great about GitHub also is if you're so let's say you're using Firebase or something, you push up an API key, you'll get a warning saying, "Hey, this is there." But if you're working with a GitHub API key, they'll just invalidate it immediately and just tell you, yeah, you have to that, get a new one. Yeah, that's what they were doing. Which was, I guess, that was the weird part. Is like I knew that the token was there in the source code, but mm-hmm. it wasn't working. Like the app wouldn't work. And I'd go to my tokens, and my token would be gone. And yeah, that was cool and also frustrating. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Does anyone have anything else to add about components? I mean, I think it'd be cool to, to hear about some of your all favorite component libraries or things that you find like super useful in your projects. Yeah. You want to start, Dean? So, yeah, yeah. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of Udify just because... I have a lot of clients that need stuff done really quickly and I don't really want to have to think about the the visual components as much as the business logic. So 
Um, I'm sure one day I will have my own component library that I use, that I maintain, but Beautify right now serves that pretty well for me. It's got really good re reactivity when it comes to responsiveness, when it comes to switching to mobile. So because I do some mobile apps with Cordova, it, it's really handy because I use that one component library for pretty much everything. The other really cool one is Sweet Alert 2. And there's a view Sweet Alert 2. It's probably my favorite alert component out there. It just looks cool. And when you implement it, clients are like, oh, that's so neat. It's so cool. It like has a little, if you do like a success message, it has a little animation that pops up and does like an SVG animation of a check mark getting checked. But I'll put I'll put it into the show notes so that people can see it because that was that's one thing that Beautify doesn't really have is confirmation boxes and that kind of stuff. That that's just as a component. Um, they kind of expect you to just use the the V dialogues and that kind of stuff. But this is dedicated to like confirmations or alerts and that kind of stuff. So it's pretty cool. I'll put it in the show notes. Awesome. Thank you. Do you have any Austin? Yeah. <laughs> Let me see. The one that I one that I use a lot is, what's it called? I want to say it's like View Notify. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty simple one. It kind of does some of the same stuff that it looks like Sweet Alert does. Or let me see, is it View Notification? It's View Notification. And it just, it's like a really helpful way. I don't know if any of you have done like having, having to do some, you know, you make an HTTP request and then in some cases it succeeds, in some cases it fails. Like maybe you you update a blog post, right? and it's if you have a form that's going to submit an HTTP request and you need to account for it to be a successful request or a failed request, you can put that logic right into your template. But then, you know, 90% of the web is forms, right? So you end up having to redo that same logic all over the place. But with a notification or like Toast component, then you kind of just have it in one place at the root of your app. And then it gives you this. When you when you register the plugin, it gives you a method across your entire project that's like this dot notify or dollar sign notify, and that will like kick out a little notification from anywhere that you are. So I use that a lot because it lets me just handle those success or error messages without having to do a lot of logic in the components where those errors or success messages would occur. Yeah, I use I do I do use View Notify, and it's pretty much the same concept as as Sweet Alert, just a little bit less in your face, more subdued, um, which is sometimes exactly what you want. Yeah. Oh, Dean, I was going to say, if you do have or when you do have your component library, you should call it Vyunsky. Vyunsky. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I also, I'm also going to give a shout out to the view Apollo project. So I don't use it, but we do have, we do GraphQL at my work and I do a lot of my own GraphQL stuff, but there's a lot of implementation that I've looked at the source code from view Apollo and it's really good. And what's his new, what's his name? Guillermo, forget how to say his, I don't know how to say his name, but the author, he's like on the core team, his handle on GitHub is Acrium. And that guy, he, he does amazing stuff. So I highly recommend it. It's really good quality source code. And yeah. Nice. I don't use a ton of libraries like this myself at work. We, we tend to stick to custom built things for stuff like this. We are using AG Grid 
for for a data grid, and that does support Angular, React, and Vue. So we're using it as well. At my last job, we used a Vue framework called Element.io. It's I picked it primarily because I wanted a good date picker, and it looked somewhat like Bootstrap, which we were already using. It's got some interesting stuff. It's got a lot of the the basics. And it's very clean. I don't necessarily recommend it as this is an awesome thing, but it's something I've used before, and it, it definitely worked. I also I also tend to use Vue Tensils as much as possible in things. Woo-hoo! Have you heard of that one? Yeah, uh, it's all right. It's all right. It's all right. I, I tend to use it because I like using Tailwind and styling things myself, and it gives me that flexibility. So I am a big fan yeah. of utensils. Yeah, I mean, I would recommend. You know, I, I think I like that library. I didn't, I didn't um, promote it, I guess, when I should have. But I would really recommend people like I try to link to the component source code so that people could, if they want, just like copy and paste the the source code itself into your project and just like use it in your own project. So I don't know. I think it's cool. I think like it's designed to be extensible, so it works. Actually, I, I want to do one more shout out. There's this project that I found recently that looks really cool. So we use Vuetify at work. I've talked about it on this podcast before. I think the developers did a great job, but I'm not the biggest fan because I'm not the biggest fan of material design anyway. Anyway, I did find this, this view use project. It's at viewuse.js.org. And it looks really awesome. It's using a lot of like the new composition API stuff and a lot of the actual implemented components. Like it's got a whole lot of handy, just super handy like helper tools, but the components that it actually provides are very low touch on the design, which is what I like because I like to have like more custom design going on. So yeah, giving it a shout out. Looks cool. I haven't used it myself, but I would like to use it on a project. What was that one called again? View use. V U E U S E. I will take a look. Yeah. Yeah, it's all it's all based on like the the composition stuff. And a lot of the composition stuff is, you know, follows the the naming the naming convention of like use whatever, because there's some there's some I don't want to call it hooks, but the the state, oh, the reactivity stuff. What? Use like uh, React stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like uh, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to wrap up all of the the logic around this thing. So I want my component to use that logic. So kind of like abstracting away things. I mean, you know, this isn't even the library I was thinking of. To be honest, this doesn't look like it has any any like layout or markup components, but it gives you things like use batteries so I can. Get information about the status of the the device battery or all sorts of cool handy stuff. I'll have to find the other one. Awesome. Back when functional programming was making its resurgence, I found it really interesting that a lot of people were moving over there and it almost felt like it was on hype. And I didn't really understand the power of functional programming until I learned Elixir. Elixir is a functional programming language. It's built on the Erlang virtual machine and it really does some interesting things and makes you build apps in a different way. But what's really fascinating about it is the speed of the applications, the ability to distribute work easily, and just how it manages the functional programming and all of the nice things about it so that you don't have to worry about side effects and a lot of the other things that come out of functional programming. Plus, pattern matching in Elixir is a killer feature. If you're looking for a new language that you want to learn, 
that is going to make a difference for you and give you the opportunity to challenge some of your thinking and find a new way of doing it, Elixir is a great way to go. And we have a podcast now on Elixir called Elixir Mix. And you can find that at elixirmix.com. Shall we move on to picks? I found it. I found it. Found it. Let's wait. I'm, I'll say it. I'll say it in my picks. Okay. In that case, Dean, what is your yeah. pick? Yeah. So I have two picks. The first one, I'm a little bit embarrassed because I have been a develop a web developer for over 20 years, and I did not discover this until just the other day. There is a command in JavaScript called debugger. You just write debugger semicolon, no brackets or anything. And what it will do is when your code hits that point, it'll pause and open up the debug console of your browser. I'm shocked that I didn't know it was there because usually the way I do that is I go into the source area and put a a breakpoint somewhere. This allows you to actually programmatically put a breakpoint in. And I never debugger is really nice. So I'm hoping that helps someone else that's listening. (laughs) But I'll put a link to the Mozilla documentation for that. And then my other pick is actually quite hilarious. And I apologize for ruining people's days and potentially weeks of productivity. It is called AI Dungeon. And I'll put a link to it. It's play.aidungeon.io. What this is, is basically an AI dungeon master. And you start a story off with what class you are. That's the first thing it asks. And then it generates a story that um, you can pretty much type whatever you want and say whatever you want. And it has a pretty good idea of what you're talking about and tries to like run you through a whole story. Eventually, you usually end up dying. But some of the responses are quite hilarious. So um, I'm going to put it in the show notes. Go have some fun. But I do apologize for the loss of productivity because it, it's just quite funny. And uh, I've done it with a group of people. And, and that is funny. I actually found it now. I can't remember. There's some visual visual artists, VFX artists, and they had an episode with this. Forget who they are now. Corridor Crew. And they have a, a YouTube episode of them playing this. And that's how I found out about it. And it is hilarious. So, yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Nice. Have you done that many rounds in it then? A decent amount. A decent amount. I've I've had one round go for a, for a good ten minutes, and then I got distracted with some some work stuff. Oh, I had to go to work. I did lost <laughs> at least ten minutes, which was I thought was pretty impressive because usually I die within the first few minutes. I I played this a little bit with my daughter because I've noticed that she likes to to do this kind of storytelling where those things happen and she responds to them. Yeah. So I I started this up and I was like, okay, we're gonna play a game. I, I started running this and just started telling her what was happening. And asking for her reactions, and it was great. Yeah, she's she's four, but still, it's it's just storytelling. So yeah. it, it was a lot of fun. I, I I can imagine it would be even more fun with with like a, a child because we kind of try to think the way the computer wants us to say something. But mm-hmm. I I found that AI Dungeon works way better when you just like pretty much say exactly how you do it in real life, and it comes out much better from a child. Yeah. Austin, what are your picks? Okay, so I found that project I was talking about. It's called Prime View. That PrimeFaces.org/slash/PrimeView. Looks like they also have a bunch of UI things for like Angular and React and stuff as well. It looks good because most of it, most of the most of the components are actually like very minimally styled, which I love because that fits into whatever sort of design that I want. To implement again. Haven't played with it, but it looks really awesome. 
the other pick that I would have is probably pickup soccer. I was playing some soccer last night and it was a lot of fun. Found a group on meetup.com and it was great. I got elbowed in the face and I think I may have broke my nose, but besides that, it's a lot of fun. It's great to get exercise and good way to make friends. Smelling is optional anyway, right? Smelling? Yeah. Smelling, yeah. <laughs> That's all right. I had, a, I had a crooked nose anyway. They might have put it back into place. <laughs> <laughs> all right. For my picks, I have two. The first one is this wonderful uh, blog post on EV, eev.ee. That was about the history of CSS from this person's perspective, and it's pretty great. And just kind of talking about his experience going from about 1998 through to today. So I'll link that in the show notes. The other is an article. Let me see if I can pull it up again. An article on, it was on on Dev.2, but it was about replacing Vuex with XState. Have either of you heard of XState? Not. Yes. For those who don't know, XState is an implementation of limited state machines in JavaScript. There are a few podcasts, a few different ones, so I won't name them, where the creator of this library was talking with their hosts. And I heard about it first there. Then I saw him on Twitter talking with various people. And it's, it's a really cool idea. You, you're able to control the flow of your application a little more precisely, kind of like with a, a stoplight where it goes from green to yellow to red to green. You can't go from red to yellow. You have to go from red to green. So it has that kind of control in place. And somebody on Dev.2 determined how one way to replace Vuex altogether and just use XState for your global state management and this kind of this concept of state machines of that kind of order while still working with Vue's reactivity model. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty interesting. And cool. I'm going to be playing with that myself soon. Yeah, the, the XState thing has come up a lot from what I've seen. It sounds pretty interesting, but it's one of those that I'm also just going to just wait and see. I feel like it's definitely a wait and see kind of thing. When I was listening to one of the, the podcast episodes on it, I think it was full stack radio. I can't remember. And I got to work and I was just like, guys, state machines, we got to try this because we were having a, we were rebuilding our application. And it, it helped a lot. We didn't use XState itself, just the concepts, but it was a lot of fun to implement and have the application work in that different pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Any uh, last thoughts from either of you? No, I got nothing. Well, this has been a fun episode. Hope everybody got a lot out of it. Uh, you can always find more about our podcast at Views on View. I think it's viewsonview.com, right? Yep. Or you can find us on Twitter. I believe that channel is always available to talking to us. Or you can find us on Discord. And I am there. Sounds like Dean is there. I think Austin's there some of the time, right? I'm there some of the time. <laughs> some of the time. Awesome. Hope everybody has a great day. See you later. See you later. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.